Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Everybody, welcome back to DeerCast, another installment of the Turkey OG series. Hope you're enjoying this, and uh, something I hope we just keep doing, Mark. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with these, but uh, Mark, my co-host again this week, and uh, Mark again lining up the the original gangsters of the turkey industry. Ernie's even got the gangster look, man. Look <laughs> at him over up in New York there. Ernie is. I just said gangster. I thought you were just putting old guy. <laughs> <laughs> It could be that, but we didn't, you know, you said it, not us. <laughs> yeah, we got Ernie Calandrelli with us this year. Longtime Quaker Boy Foundation. He's been there for nearly 50 years, worked full time for him, retired. He's now working harder in retirement than he did when he worked for them. Mossy Oak Pro Staff guy. He's won or placed in well over 100 contests. He's emceed probably more than that. He's judged more than that. Ernie's been a, a huge part of the turkey industry his entire life, and uh, we're so proud to have you on the show today, Ernie. Appreciate you, buddy. Well, it's good to be here, and God bless the wild turkey. Boy, it sure has been uh, been a great part of your life and my life, has it not? It's been a wild ride, but it's been a fantastic ride, Mark. How, how would you think that you could ever make your living, especially when I first started? I, I was a welder, and... I said, there's, you know, you never, you don't even think about it. these things just happen. You don't plan for them where you ended up, you know, making most of your living off a, off a bird, off a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing. When did you call in your first competition, Ernie? It was 70. It was 77, I believe. The, Ernie, you said you were a welder. Were you a welder when you called in your first competition? Oh, yeah. I used to drive the guys that at work nuts. Every time I'd flip my shield, now that's all I heard was turkey call coming off from underneath that hood. <laughs> I still 
still have guys that I talk to nowadays that, that, that do you remember when you worked here or you worked? Oh, we're going to have some problems with Ernie's connection. He said he's in his gun club up in New York, I believe. So this is like perfect OG. This is typical of the OG. <laughs> right, he's back. Sorry, Ernie. You're cutting out again. I got you saying that you were you were calling underneath your welding hood at work, driving everybody nuts, which I imagine there's a lot of guys that listen to our show that probably do the same thing to their coworkers. Well, that's what you got to do. You do it under your welding hood or while you're driving your vehicle. That's the best place. Just keep it working. It is. I always used to call in my basement and dad would get home from work and he'd open the basement door. Mark, shut up. Slam the door. (laughs) (laughs) You remember Big Ralph, don't you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everywhere I, you know, you know, Mark, you were the same way. Everywhere we went, I always had a pocket full of calls and, uh, you're always blowing them. I mean, you, you just blew them because that's just what we did back then with uh, the passion we had and the love for it. So how long, yes. when you, Ernie, when you called, how long did you work as a welder before you left that to be like in the industry full-time? 14 years I was a welder. Did you like it? I loved it. You did? Yeah, I still weld. One, if somebody needs something done once in a while, uh, you know, I'll still stick something together to it, but anymore, it's about sticking it together because I don't see like I used to. Yeah. yeah. I was just curious, you know, because a lot of our listeners and, and some of us even on the, the crew, you know, might have a job we like or don't love and dream about working in the industry. So I always like to ask that question, you know, if it comes up, like how, you know, because everybody's passionate about hunting. And in this case, you guys are even more passionate about turkeys specifically than the than the average guy, maybe. But um yeah, I just always always curious about that. Like, you know, if you're passionate about something, did you just keep doing the call the calling competitions and an opportunity arose, or like, you know, how does it all pan out? Yeah, it's it's a lot of it is luck and knowing the right people and being in the right place at the right time. But uh, and I want to say, yeah, to be in to do what I did, I'm a I think Mark will agree. I'm a people person. I love people. I love talking to people. I love hanging with people and hearing stories and telling stories and you know and in the sport or the industry that we're in, I mean it's pretty much built on relationships. So uh, you know, I mean you need to build relationships and and as it progresses, uh, if you're lucky enough, you know you maybe have an opportunity to get into that industry. The other thing Ernie is, he's extremely loyal. You know, he's a people person. He's very loyal. He was friends with Dick Kirby back in the day. One of the first original Quaker Boy pro staff, I would assume, Ernie. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe the first. Um, him and Paul Butsky. And he just stuck with Dick throughout his entire career. Him and Dick Kirby were like that. Wherever Dick was, Ernie was. And, um you know, Quaker Boy wouldn't be what it is today without Ernie Calandrelli. That is a 100% factual statement. I think, uh, you know, God bless Dick Kirby. God rest his soul. He would make that same comment, I'm fairly certain. I think Chris Kirby would make that same comment. Well, I appreciate that, Mark. That's, uh, that's a definitely a hell of a comment to make to me. Well, Very well appreciated. It's the truth. Many people know Ernie as Quaker Boy because – He's been the face of the brand for many, many years, along with Dick and Chris. But uh, those three are synonymous with that brand. And uh, Mossy Oak, the same. He's been with Mossy Oak his, his whole time, too. So Ernie's the, a uh, guy, one of the best out there. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, there was a time where every major call manufacturer years ago offered, wanted me to go to work for them, and and I, I'm a loyal guy, and I stayed faithful, and uh, and I'm glad I did. Now, of course, you know, when you retire, uh, you're always nervous. I don't, I didn't want my lifestyle to change. I wanted to be able to do the same things I did in retirement uh, and be able to afford the same things that I did when I was working. And heck, right now I make more money than I made when I was working. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a win-win. It's working out. Well, there's not a lot of people walking this earth that have the experience and the knowledge that Ernie does. Uh, he's been to so many different turkey functions in his life, whether it be the local contest, a state contest, a banquet, uh, a hunt, a hunting camp with riders. Uh, whatever it is, if it's turkey related, Ernie was always there. He was the one consistent, no matter where I went, Ernie Calandrelli was there. And that's part of the reason we became best of friends because we, we were around each other so much. And he, like me, is a people person. And so once in a while, I'd see him at the bar and we might have a drink together. So, Isn't that how we met? <laughs> it was how we met, yeah. <laughs> I got to tell that story before we get going here. Oh, God. Tactics. And I, I'm going to tear up probably when I tell this, but Ernie meant so much to me as a young kid. I went to, I believe it was Dallas, to the Grand Nationals for the first time. I walk in there. I'm a young kid. I'm 20 years old, if I'm not mistaken. And I walk in. I'm all alone. I go to the bar in the hotel. I'm not 21 yet. I thought, man, I could really use a drink. I just drove this whole way down here. I order a bar, Bud, uh, you know, Bud Light. Guy brings it over to me, doesn't card me. I'm like, all right, I'm going to have a beer and just, you know, relax here a little bit. I look over to my left, and there sits Ernie, one stool down. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's Ernie Calandrelli. So here I am, 20 years old. My only um, optics into the Turkey Federation or the Turkey World was Turkey Call Magazine. Well, he's in there every week. He placed in this contest. He placed in the Grand Nationals. And Ernie's was one of the best callers in the country at that time. And for me, as a kid, never being out of Missouri before, I couldn't believe it. I wasn't a kid. I was a young man. And uh, I looked over at him and said something. And we sat there on those two bar stools for four hours and drank several Bud Lights. And he treated me that day like I belonged. And after that period, I always felt like I belonged at the Grand National Calling Competition, and I always belonged where I, where I could go, and I didn't have a lot of confidence going into that. Ernie made me feel so at home and so much like family. We we became friends after that day, and that was 1987, and we've been best of friends ever since. So I, I always owe some of those humble beginnings to Ernie Calandrelli because he make me, made me feel believe, or, uh, like I belong. That's another compliment. You keep complimenting me. <laughs> the, the only difference is now, Mark, I want to be you. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best, buddy. Uh, You're the best. That's awesome. Aaron, do you remember that day? Like like that, you know, do you remember watching Mark walk up? You know, prob I remember exactly when he sat next to me. And and we were like the only ones there, right, Mark? We were the only two at the bar. Yeah, we were the only two there, and and we and you know Mark's personable, and he started talking to me, and I had no idea when he told me later that he was all nervous and all, I, I, yeah. you know. But yeah, it's I mean stuff like that is 
is uh, you know what we're all about. Like when somebody goes to the uh, the Grand Nationals or the Turkey Convention, like I had Matt Light there this year, right? And with his foundation and this and that, and I said, Matt, I said, the thing that you're going to like the best about where we're at and what we're doing right here now is these are our people. They're our people. That's mm. the way, I mean, this, you, you know, the SHOT Show, yeah, but the SHOT Show's got a lot of business. And he already told me, he says, I'm not going to the SHOT Show anymore. I'm going to the Turkey Convention. Okay. Because, you know, there was the, the relationships and the camaraderie and what have you. It's just. You know, we're one big happy family. And that's the way I feel about Mark. I mean, since that day, we've been best of friends. We have. And we've tilted a few more Bud Lights back since that day, oh, that's for sure. Yes, we have. <laughs> hey, the old saying is, the juries don't leave till the beer's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't run out till Ernie drinks the last one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So, Ernie, one of the questions I've been asking a lot of these guests, and you're you're in a, a, an elite group, deservedly so. Toxie Hayes, Harold Knight, Rob Keck, all of these different turkey OGs. And I've been asking this question. Something that you have learned through your many experiences in the turkey woods that you really feel like can make a difference for a newcomer or somebody, something that works as well as other tactics often, that's one part of the question. And then B, some things that perhaps you used to do wrong or you see other people doing wrong that you might avoid, mistakes people make, if you will. So start with that first part. What's something that you like to do that is successful for you? Well, when I first started, and I think we were all like this, I mean, when when a turkey gobbled, I mean, I'm breathing hard. The, I mean, I'm not even set up on them yet. The snot's flying out of my nose. I mean, I'm after it. I, you got to get up there and you got to get after it. And and I've learned now that, that uh, you know, it, it's like any other hunt you do. Uh, you know, you got to have some patience. And, and patience is a virtue as far as I'm concerned. Because, you know, maybe that turkey may stand out there, you know, at 45 minutes or an hour, maybe even longer than all of a sudden. When you get to the right time or, or something different happens or the weather changes, uh, you know, you make another call and all of a sudden he's halfway to you. So that's one of the things. Patience is is uh, is a virtue. And and for beginner hunters, uh, I think a lot of them read too much into it. I think they overanalyze. Don't overanalyze the situation. You get in there, you run the call. If things are right, in a matter of minutes, you're going to be wearing them. If things out right, have a little patience. Give him some time to come in. If he's moving away or whatever and you have no other options, try to get around him, get set up on him again. But the worst thing you want to do is don't try to get too close to him. We manufacture turkey calls to make the turkey come to us. That's the whole name of the game right there. Not for you to go to the turkey and try to sneak up on them where, where you're only 50 yards from them or whatever. Stay 100 yards back or 150 or even 200 yards back. You make the call. That's why you're there. You're there to call that turkey in. So give them that opportunity to come to you. That's, a, that's great advice, and that's not, not a response we've had yet. To me, 
a mistake I see so often is people try to get too close. And yeah. inevitably, you're going to bump more than you're not going to bump when you try to get too close because they are good at living. I mean, they <laughs> are really good at living. When you try to push that envelope, you're going to spook a bunch of them, and then you're out of the game. At least if you're back, even if he's not coming, you're still in the game because he could break at any second. Is it possible yeah, to in, – uh... in A prime example of that is is like – I mean, I've been hunting Texas a little over, well, over 30 years. And uh, when we get the guys from home that come into the ranch or whatever, and they want to go, they want to go, they want to go. Texas is wide open. And I tried to tell them, look, you got to sit and call, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, whatever. Then get up, then walk four or 500 yards and do the same thing. Because if you're walking and calling and, and yeah, you're running and gunning, this is, it's a whole different situation. Because them turkeys can see forever in Texas. It's a, they can see a long way. There's a lot of open territory. And in, 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 to me, Texas uh, will, te- will teach you a little more patience. That, you know, the running and gunning works good in a lot of places. But, you know, like you just got done saying, once you go in too close and bump them, uh, you're pretty much done for that day. Well, can you get too close to the birds and then, like, you know, start your calling? If you're, if, can that freak them out? You know, if you start calling too loud, like you may, you may have got a little closer than you should. Then you start calling. My opinion, nah. no, that's my opinion. I, I, you know, you you never start out as loud as you can. Of course, you know, I always like to call it. I would build it up to a crescendo. <laughs> that's what I would say. You know, I'd start off just normal talk and then. After a while, you know, but some turkeys aren't going to gobble unless you pound that call. Mm-hmm. You got to pound it out of them sometime. Make him give his location away, which, uh, you know, in most cases, is a, it's half or three quarters of a hunt. Yep, 100%. I, I agree with Ernie. No, you really can't unless you're already visible to him. Then you might draw his attention your yeah. way and spook him that way. But so often people are spooking birds and they don't even know they're spooking them. You know, turkey... No. He catches movement. He's just going to lower that head and go the other way. They don't always putt, you know, and deer don't oh, always yeah. snort. They just leave the leave the area, and all of a sudden you never hear him again. You go, what happened? Well, you bumped him, you know? Yeah. And they're easy to bump. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, they got that eyesight, so they're looking pretty good right there. And they're they're looking for what's the, where that noise that's coming from. If it's a turkey call or hear you walking in the leaves or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking in that, or you can bet they're looking in that direction. So you're going to bump more than not. And to Ernie's point about Texas being open and they can see you, that openness, whether it's in Texas or the Midwest or New York, wherever you're at, open scenarios, you don't hear them as well because you're not in that echo chamber. If you're in the woods, sometimes that echo will carry it and keep the sound within the trees. When you're out in the open, open air eats up gobbles. So all of a sudden, if you're depending on walking and calling, well, you might have to be within visible sight of that turkey before you can even hear him. Many times I've seen birds run their heads out and I never hear the gobbles. So always be, uh, um, you know, cognizant of your surrounding. Like, am I going to be able to hear him well here or not? How windy is it? Is the wind blowing from where I think he's at to me or is it blowing from me to him? You know, all of those different things can make the difference between spooking a bird and killing him. Exactly. Exactly. So what was the second part of that question? Mistakes people made. You kind of you kind of went into oh, oh, yeah, the mistakes. mistakes that one, one other mistake, you know, quickly to throw it in there is 
if if somebody's going to set up on a turkey in a roost in you know in the dark in the morning or later on in the morning whatever and you, they set up wrong they set up wrong against a tree or whatever they're setting up against they always set up facing where the gobble's coming from and that was always kind of a pet peeve of mine that uh uh, you're not setting up right. You're not setting up right. I'm left-handed. I set 45 degrees or sometimes 90 degrees on the on the on the left side of the tree because that's you know just because that turkey's gobbling out there right now doesn't mean he's coming straight to you. So you got to one of the major mistakes that that uh, new turkey hunters make: the turkey's gobbling in front and they're just sitting right there facing straight at them. No, you got right-handers got to get on the right side of the tree. Left-handers got to get on the left side of the tree. Now, I'm not talking the back side of the tree, but 90, 45 degrees is 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 pretty much uh, the the normal place. Well, once in a while, 90. That way, you have that whole swing where you can swing that gun all the way around. Then you got a 180 180 degree range where if that turkey comes into that 180 degrees, you ought to be able to knock them down. Yep. Hundred percent. That's good advice, Ernie. If you're if you're going out and you're working a turkey, like what call do you go to the most often? What and not device, but sound are you using the most when you're out turkey hunting? When when I'm, oh, I, I, turkey call is what I'm using. Is that yeah. what you're? I'm yeah. saying what vocalization? Are you yelping, cutting, purring, you know, cackling? What are you doing more often than not when you're hunting? I'm always yelping. I yelp, I yelp hard, and then I'll throw some. If I don't, if not, if I'm not getting a response, then I start cutting, cutting and yelping because I'm trying to draw that gobble out of them. So I, I need something. You know, sometimes you can even get them to shot gobble with a turkey call. So I pound them with that call. Once he gobbles, then I'm gonna go, and I'm still yelping. You know, when it's going on, if he's getting closer, I do a lot of clucking and purring on a slight call uh, just because I, I like the vibrations they send out. And a lot of times the turkeys will eat that right up on their way and just purr a little bit. And once you get their attention, they're listening and they're listening hard. You know, I've had turkeys gobble so far away that I've had people sitting with me. Say, There's no way he gobble at you. That's what I'm telling you right now, that turkey gobble him. <laughs> no way. He's not gobbling, not just. I mean, you could hardly hear him. And the once once you get him in tune to where you're at, they're li- I don't care what anybody says, they're listening. They're listening for that sound again. You give them that sound again, you can get them to gobble again and, you know, hopefully, of course, come to you. Yeah, the best analogy is they're listening for your sound just like you're listening for their gobble in return. They're standing exactly. there. You watch a turkey when he's all by himself out in the field. He'll stand there and he'll look around, and then all of a sudden he'll raise his head up to see better and hear better so he can hear if there's hens calling or other gobblers approaching. Or They use that hearing. That's how they stay alive, man, and that's how they communicate more often than not. I agree. I agree. Hmm. Yeah, I always wondered that, too. It's like... Yeah, if you're doing that, like the purr, like that, that quiet, and that gobbles way off in the distance, like man, I guess that makes sense. They're listening for your at, but for where you're at, just how you're listening for them. But yeah, it's like some of the times you wouldn't think you think he's just gobbling because he's gobbling. Hundred percent. And the hard part is they're often they're bad about standing their ground because more often than not, 
when you're working a turkey, he's all if he's down on the ground already. So we're we're on into the day a little bit here. He's probably standing somewhere pretty already. Like they're good about going to a pretty spot, hanging out where they can see, hear, strut, be seen. So you're trying to pull him off of a place he's already comfortable in. Yeah. Sometimes you got to get on up in the morning a little bit, find when they start walking, you know, and feeding a little bit in order to have a better chance of, of calling them in. That's why time of the day is so important when you can go for, you know, two hours and not have any luck. And then all of a sudden the next three turkeys you strike, they all come in. You got to understand what they're doing during the day and then take advantage of what they're doing. Yeah. The old saying is, uh, you know, the best place to set up is from where a turkey is to where he wants to be, <laughs> to where he's going yeah. in between that and your gold. Yeah, you, it sounds simple, but it's the truth. I heard Ben Lee make that comment in St. Louis at the Levi Garrett competition years and years and years ago. And it's uh, that's, that's exactly who I got it from. So you heard it from Ben, too. Oh, yeah. How about yeah. it? Isn't it funny? Like some of the best advice seems so obvious when you say it, but it doesn't always get thought about. So, so Ernie, who were the guys you were tuning into? Um, when you were a young man, like you want, you went to a Ben Lee seminar, who were some of the guys that you couldn't wait to meet? The I don't even know who them guys were the first time I met them. I walked into, it was Owego, New York, and it was the Southern tier, whatever Turkey. I had written a story. I wrote, I wrote a story. It was in a New York sportsman magazine. It wasn't much better than a newspaper back then. But I called it the King of Spring, you know, about a turkey I killed and all that. And, and uh, I, where my story ended on the facing page was an ad for a turkey calling contest. I didn't even know they had turkey calling contests. And uh, so I wasn't married then. Me and my girlfriend, I said, let's let's go see what's going on at this thing. It's about a four-hour ride. So we went down and we spent a weekend uh, at the uh, Wego Treadway Inn. That's where they held the contest at. When I walked in the door in there, you know, of course, you know, they got booths and everything, but it was just little hallways, nothing like it is now. And uh, the first person I see when I walk in is Ben Lee. Now, I, I mean, I want to say I didn't know who they were. I knew who Ben Lee was. Everybody knew who Ben Lee was. And, uh, but, you know, even as it is now, as, as it was back then, I mean, I went up, I talked to him. It was like I was his best friend. He'd never seen me from Adam. As I went through there, Kelly Cooper's there. He's got a booth set up in there. Go a little further, Dick Kirby's there. I had no idea who Dick Kirby was. And we, we struck a conversation up, and he says, yeah. I says, yeah, I call. You know, I haunt. Uh, he says, you got a call? I says, yeah. He says, let me hear it. And at that time, I had a Penn Woods call. That's what I was running. And uh, I ran, and he said, oh, yeah. he said well, you, you're going to get in a contest. I said, they did amateur contest. I said, I'm not getting in no contest. He said, you're getting in that contest. You need to. Then, with more conversation, I we ended up finding out he only lives 40 miles from me. We didn't know that. And I had no idea anybody in that area any, did anything like this. And from there, uh, I, I the, the I would have won that contest, Mark, but he wanted me to use one of his calls and I couldn't whistle on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other ones I was good. And, and uh, so I used his call to yelp and do all the other stuff, but I couldn't, I couldn't get his call to whistle for me. So I ended up second, but 
that's what started it. And that's what started our relationship right there. Then he called me like the next week or two, or it might've been a month later. And he says, uh, you want to go to another Turkey calling contest? I said, yeah, I'll go. So we went to the Pennsylvania States and that was the year. So whatever year that was, Billy O'Daniels from South Carolina, he won the world's that year. All right. So we're going down there, you know, now we're in a non-resident division. And, you know, a lot of the Southern boys are up there. And that's where I got to meet a lot of them at that contest. So anyway, we get done with the contest. I won. And I was shocked. And I think a lot of them were shocked. And I remember Billy O going up to Dick. And he says, why did you bring this guy? He said, where did he come from? He was laughing. You know what I mean? But he said, that's going to learn you. That's going to learn you bring these guys around anymore, he told them. Don't bring the cop back. <laughs> from there, that lit the fire in me. And and uh, and then the following year, I took Paul at the same contest. Paul owned, you know, Paul and I went to school together. You know all that. But we, we, we went to school together, and, and we had done a little bit of hunting together and what have you. But Paul owned a, uh, he owned a fishing store, a sporting goods store not far from my house. And, you know, of course he worked, but then they did the the store on the side. Oh, so I'd be, I'd hang out in there at night and whatever have you. And I told him about this stuff. And I, I gave him a, a couple of the, the mouth calls that Dick gave him. I said, here, try these. Well, I created a monster there, didn't I? Boy, did you ever, dude. <laughs> uh, you said yeah, it took him two or three years then to beat me, but uh, there, there was no looking back after that. And I remember when I was second or third place, and I'd go, what did I do to myself? Well, you should have listened to Billy's advice, right? Billy Daniel told you. He I, I should have listened to Billy O's advice. Paul <laughs> would have still been selling fishing lures. Here's a, here's a great picture I want to share for those that are watching it. This is this is Dick, Paul, and Ernie. I don't know. That had to be in the 70s, I would assume, Ernie. Yeah, it was probably 79, 70, yeah, probably 79, maybe 80, but I don't think so. Probably 79, yeah. yeah. Where is that? Where is that? That's right behind my camp in New York. Oh, beautiful. beautiful. Dude, that's awesome. One of my favorite. One of my By the favorite. way, I'm the one who killed that turkey, too. I have no doubt. <laughs> that's awesome. I like seeing that, like, the, the pictures and stuff are, like, the coolest part, I think, of, like, talking about like i don't know whatever you guys want to call them the good old days to me or like me hearing about the pioneer days is probably a way to describe it a bit but like when uh toxie was talking about his dad's camp back in the like killed his first turkey in the night like 1944 i'm like man i wonder if he's got photos of all that it'd be neat to just go through that history and just kind of see where it all started yeah, it's pretty incredible That's pretty cool. incredible Mr. Fox be has become an institution within the hunting industry just because of that longevity. And I, I can't imagine there's another person alive that has the streak that Mr. Fox has. He's probably out there, but uh, certainly Mr. Fox's has been, you know, widely talked about through our friends over there at Mossy Oak. It's just amazing that he's still going after all these years and still loves it. Shows you how deep that passion runs and how long it can run in your life. I mean, it's, uh, it's probably along with his family, part of his reason to, to live, you know, I mean, get, getting to get out there and hear those gobbles. Ernie, Incredible. I was, uh, doing some reading on you and I found something kind of interesting. I just want to ask you this kind of vaguely, uh, but how do you, how do you feel about naming a Turkey? 
I ate it. Why? Because what's your name? You know, the, a lot of the camps I guided out of, they say, hey, we got this turkey over here. He's, we, we, we want to put you on him. <laughs> Find me another one. <laughs> <laughs> what, but there what? were times where I did kill names. I, I did kill uh, turkeys with these. Well, when you name a turkey, I mean, he's been there long enough to get a name. <laughs> I mean, that means he's not playing the game right as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Or he knows how to play the game. Yeah. That's probably a better way to look at it. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, you got a name on it. Uh, you've hunted him, what, 28 days straight? And you want me to go in there and try to kill him? But there are times when that has worked. Not only, for, I'm sure other guys have done it too, mm -hmm. where I remember one year we were on some celebrity hunt somewhere, and one of the guys, I've been trying to kill this turkey for two weeks, uh, this and that. I says, well, I said, I'll go in there. I forgot. We had, uh, I know you know who we had in there, Mark. It was the, the, the colonel who used to work for the uh, the Turkey uh, Federation. Jim, uh, God, I feel terrible. I can't remember his last name. But anyway, we went in there that morning. Heck, I called that turkey's gobble on a roost. I called like three times. We were wearing them. At <laughs> <laughs> the guide, he said, I've been trying to kill that turkey for two weeks. I said, you know what, Pat? You weren't there on the right morning. And you know that you can, I've hunted turkeys 26, 28 days. They can't do anything with them, but you go on there on the 29th day, you make two or three calls and he comes running right into you because he was right. A lot of turkey hunting is if that turkey's not right, they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. They're, I don't care what kind of turkey it is. Osceola, Rio, Merriam, whatever. If they're hand up and they're not in the right frame or, or right spot in the breeding season, uh, all the tactics change that uh, everything's got to change because you have to come up with different tactics to be able, uh, uh, you know, to kill a turkey like that. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite? Anybody uh, can kill a turkey that they call three times and he runs into them pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But that don't happen. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen every day for us, unfortunately, but, but thank good it doesn't happen. So we do have some turkeys to hunt. Yeah, there's no Definitely. doubt. And, and, you know, a lot of the studies show now, that it's better to wait until they've done their breeding anyway to make sure those hens get bred and kill them during the latter part of the season. And it, it does open up a window here in the Midwest. I feel like that window occurs sometime around the first week of May here. Like they're, they're really hend up, you know, the call it the oh, 18th or 19th or 20th of April through the end of the month. And then sometime in that first week of May, they start getting really, really playful again. And then they'll stay good till about I don't know, 12th, 15th, and then all of a sudden their testosterone starts to drop and they're, it's hard to get them to take a step towards you. But here in the Midwest, I, I love that first week of May. That's uh, Paul and I used to take the third week of the season off. Yeah. That's when we the third week mm -hmm. of May. That's when things seemed right. And, in, you know, they, they were, it was always good then. Which, if you're listening, you probably understood now that, that Ernie lives in New York. But uh, anytime I went to New York with Randy Panic, he always insisted on the third week of, of may i was always up there around the 20th of may or so when when i came up there to hunt and it was always really good right then yep yep ernie how are you your bird numbers up there right now ernie well you know they've been tough the last few years <clears throat> but uh they did seem to have a pretty good hatch last spring uh actually right next to where we're sitting there was 25 birds in the field yesterday out there no good uh, no gobblers but <laughs> there was one jake 
you know, where he came from, why there would be a one lone Jake out there, I have no idea. But I'm glad that we finally, uh, the spring before last, we had a little hatch, but last spring we had a hatch. And uh, to me, I'm getting more reports from people in this area that are seeing more turkeys, and I've seen more turkeys. So hopefully it'll build back up a little bit. But one interesting thing at the at the show we, that you and I just left was I remember years ago, you know, you'd go to Missouri, you'd hear, tell me if I'm lying, Mark, 2025 on a roost, a lot of more. I mean, it was, Missouri was, num- Eastern Turkeys, Missouri was number one. Absolutely. That's where you went. You want to hear a lot of turkeys? And big turkeys, not just turkeys. The Missouri strain turkeys are huge. But other states followed along. Ohio, Kentucky, uh, Indiana, you know, all of them. And you could go with the, the first, you know, four or five years that their season opened, that's how it was. You'd hear 20, 25, Tennessee, and the roof. But now, and, and I believe Mother Nature does that, it gets to what the area can hold, and, you know, and it gets the population <coughs> into the right. And and you're, you're not going to hear 20 turkeys. You're not going to hear 20 eastern turkeys on a roof anymore. Very, very rarely you're going to if you do. And if they are, 15 of them will be jakes. So, yeah, I believe that you know people that yes, the population's down. I know it's down because I, I mean, I hunt five, six states every spring to this day, and uh, uh, but a lot of it is people say all our turkeys. No, your turkeys aren't gone. Your turkeys are leveling off, and still, I mean, when when it's right in them states, you're still hearing six, eight, ten in the roost. So it's still pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. There's such a thing as population dynamics. When a population is building, you're going to hear a lot more turkeys than when it's stable or declining. Now, we've got a lot of areas in our country where the numbers are so low again, you could see a buildup where you might have those heydays revisit again, provided we can get the nest predation under control and provided we can get turkeys, you know, to where they're they're you know, hatching well again, but we've got right. a problem in a lot of parts parts of our country. And it's great. It's good that we're talking about it in forums like this and the Federation, you're reading more articles about it, bring awareness to the hunter and they'll help take care of things on their own. We got to do better at keeping those nest predators under control, do better at habitat, food plots, laying off the trigger, you know, let these turkeys breed and so on and so forth. And we, we can bring it back, but we got to take some steps to do so. You know, the other thing, too, with me, the limits in the states. I, when I first started hunting Alabama, limit six. You know, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, what was the South Carolina? It was, what, five? Yeah. You know, now now these states have cut back since. But, I mean, my own personal opinion, and some people might get mad at me here, two gobblers in the spring in every state in the country, I mean, you shouldn't have a problem with it. No. Right. I don't think. And in some states, think. it should probably be one. You know, based yeah, on some states one. I agree. I should. agree. And and perhaps there's other states where it should be a draw based on population, you know. But I would say two's a plenty. And if you can't get your fill with that, then something's wrong. Go hunt with somebody else or take a kid or something like that and spread it out a little bit. Don't hunt the same population over and over and over because once the one thing about turkey hunting in the spring, they're susceptible to good tactics and good decoying and good calling you can kill them all if you catch them in the right mood and you got to have your own self-discipline to make sure you're not shooting too many turkeys 
Mm-hmm. I, I got a question for both of you guys. What, when it comes to like the subspecies of turkey, is there one that's like notoriously more fragile as far as like a population is concerned, or one that's more? I, I guess we'll start with fragile as far as like oh, like the you know the, there's probably more eastern, so they're hurting more the Rio or Merriam. Like, is there one notorious to that? I, I'd say all. Uh, I would say all. the Osceola is the most fragile because there's only one place you could get them. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, I mean that I would say, and even down there now, there's been a lot more interbreeding and what have you. And I mean, the true, the, the true Osceola's are still in South Florida. Uh, but you know, with the interbreeding with the Eastern, they, they've moved up into the North. What, but still, I mean, you can kill turkeys there, you know, their wing feathers are black and, you know, they got longer legs and, and what have you. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I would say that is probably uh, the most fragile just because of the area that they're in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. I agree with that. But in reality, they're all fragile, mm-hmm. you know, and as we've seen with declines in many different areas, it's a fragile population. Everyone's a walking miracle. Like I was saying on the on the podcast with with Toxie, they got mm-hmm. a lot of things working against them from the air you know they got birds of prey trying to kill them they got coyotes trying to kill them bobcats are tough on them nest predation just absolutely destroys them i mean raccoons possums skunks fisher uh, cats Uh, yeah yeah, it's armadillos hogs i mean there's so many different things that disrupt that nest Mm -hmm. um so they it's it's tough to keep turkeys alive what in your guys experience like is is What's your favorite subspecies of the turkey to hunt? And, like, what's, like, the main characteristic of that one? Is it the eastern? Because they're the most common. My favorite one to hunt is the one that's doing the most golf. <laughs> I don't care which one it is. But, no, I grew up, you know, hunting easterns. And, and uh, you know, that's what I started with. And, and yeah, I, I love easterns. But I tell you right now, the Murillos in Texas are an awful lot of fun. I'll tell you that. They are fun. They, they are fun. And I would, uh, my answer to that is Easterns. I love Southern Iowa and Northern Missouri, man. I'm, I was blessed to do the bulk of my turkey hunting in, in my opinion, the best place to hunt wild turkeys. And that's Northern Missouri, Southern Iowa. So it's Easterns for me. And I, I meant to mention this on the podcast with Harold, but I once heard him make the statement, his definition of a grand slam is four big Easterns from four different states, <laughs> you know, because it's a, a Rio, a Merriam, uh, Osceola and, uh, and an Eastern, but Harold's definition was four big Easterns from four different States. And I think Ernie, you'd probably agree with that. <laughs> I like that. I like that Harold. Yeah. 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 That's a good one. Was that, a it goal? doesn't surprise me that it came from Harold either. <laughs> no. <laughs> was that a goal for you guys at one point, you know, earlier in your Turkey days is like, try to get a slam, try to get one of each subspecies. Personally, you know how many slams I've killed? One. And I'm at zero. I've not killed a slam yet. I've not. I don't even one. care. I, I don't I, really. I I really don't. I could have killed an Osceola for thirty years in a row. I mean, I got to get invited every year, and I've killed one. My kids killed two grand slams. Yeah. I've only killed one. And I've not. I've not killed one. So I'm not. Wow. I'm. I'm just. I'm not that type of guy. Where I, I'm not into all that. I get that. No, I respect that though. I think that's that's kind of a cool answer. I, I'm not either. The one that always catches my attention is when somebody's killed them in all 48, you know, that to me is, 
Now that's, that's a, a true turkey hunter, right? That's there. a feat. That's somebody that's really loving it to to be able to go to all of them. A, it's expensive. B, it's a, it's an incredible time expense. But to do that, that's next to impossible. I mean, there's only a handful that have done it. I think Rob was the first one to do it. Rob Keck. Now oh, my wow. my friend in Kansas uh, was a 21. He killed six grand slams in one year. Wow. And I had people calling me out. You can't do that. Yeah, you can do that. If you read the rules, you can do it. Now, two of me shot in the fall, mm. but it's still considered a grand slam. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So, hmm. but anyway, yeah, he kills. And that's his goal right now. His goal right now is to, uh, uh, is to kill one in every state right now. That's his goal. Now, I, I do like hunting them in new terrains. You know, like if somebody invites me someplace I haven't been, the first question I'm going to ask is, how many do you normally hear of a morning? That's always the first question I ask. And number two is, how many jakes did you see last year? So you kind of understand whether you're going into a good situation or bad situation because it's about perspective. Somebody could tell you, oh, we got turkeys everywhere. You get there and you don't see a turkey the whole trip, you know. And I kind of like to do my due diligence and vet those out a little bit before I'll go somewhere new. But the older I get, the less I travel. And I just like hunting there in Missouri and southern Iowa. I just figured my schedule out today and uh, this next run coming up starting the end of March, pure miles. That's not ranch miles or farm miles or anything else. I'm going to be right at about 5,000 miles on my trip. This, this spring? Yeah. Ernie's still mad at him. Listen to him. <laughs> How many different states does that encompass? I'm going, uh, let me, let me count them. <laughs> uh, I think it's six. That's a lot of miles, brother. They must be six. spread out <laughs> that trip from New York to Texas. <laughs> but you know what I like? I like when I when I travel. I I I try to go a little different route here and there because I want to see different parts of the country. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I like the, I don't want to say I love the drive, but I like the drive. I don't have a problem driving and, and, I'm retired, so I don't have to be anywhere at any specific. Well, there's certain hunts I have to be at at specific times, but but I I nothing pressing, so I leave early. <laughs> are you Are you going to Missouri this year? To the where? To Missouri? No. 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 Kentucky. Yeah. Yep. Kentucky, Ohio, uh, Mississippi, Texas. I probably have to guide a youth hunt in Rhode Island. That's the last one. But I guide a youth hunt in Ohio, too. And uh, New York. What's nice. your favorite state to hunt out of all those? Or the favorite state you've ever hunted for turkeys? The favorite best times I've probably ever had are are in uh, North Missouri. And Georgia, too. I like Georgia. Mark's been to our old camp at uh, in North Missouri. Yeah. It's pretty darn good there. 
It used to be anyway. Unionville Sportsman's Club. All right. The good old days, Ernie. Man, we, yes, sir. we drank a few beers there, didn't we? I remember you and I hunting on Greg Allison's farm, too, during a celebrity hunt in Warsaw. Yeah, that was good. Yep, that was good. Boy, down there, Tad's out of turkeys. There's just no turkeys down in that country at all right now. It's sad. That's incredible. And it was loaded back then. Mm-hmm. Loaded. So if you think it can't happen to you, it can. You can lose yep. them. You know, how fragile, like you said earlier, how fragile it actually is is incredible. <clears throat> Yeah. How are you on decoys, Ernie? What Do you use decoys? When do you use I, them? What's your tips on decoy usage? I like using decoys because uh, it just takes the attention off. You know, if I'm in a big heavy woods or something, I might not use them because I don't want to lug them in there. But uh, I like using a, at least a Jake and a hen, and normally a Jake and two hens is what I use. Now, I've used uh, full strut decoys and that, and and, you know, they're either going to really help you or they're going to really hurt you. You know, it can go either way on them. Uh, but just a, a pure one decoy can hurt you if it's the wrong time of year. And normally what I do is when I put a decoy out, if a turkey spooks off that decoy that day, I won't use them for four, five, six days probably. I won't put them out again because, they're to me, they're in that, part of the breeding season where they just don't want anything to do with them. What causes it or what have you, I don't know. But as soon as I get a bird spook off a decoy, and in most cases, I believe that, that when they spook off a decoy, you got a ton of jakes because oh. the jakes are running around beating everything up. Yeah. And uh, they just don't want the confrontation, I believe. But why they would answer a call and come and look and see a decoy and go the other way, I have no idea. But they do. But they do, and I don't know why they did either. But that right there is one of the best tips we've had through this whole series. I mean, nobody's mentioned that yet. That's a that's a great tip right there. Like whatever, if something's not working, get away from it. Whether it be decoys, calls, whatever. Like go go a different direction because they're just finicky like that. It's hard to explain, but they go through little periods and little phases where they get a little finicky. And if you find what's working, conversely. Pour the gas to it. It's probably going to keep working. If you find something that's not working, get away from it. I, I agree. I agree with that 100%. I think a lot of inexperienced turkey hunters, and like probably me included, at certain times and like the growth and experience of it looked at like a decoy almost as like a cure-all. Like, well, I got the decoys out there. It didn't come into them. And then you just keep trying it because you just hope one eventually comes in. But, you know. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of times I've seen it happen in certain years where they didn't seem to like the decoys. And I think that has to do with like, are these all, did we not hatch two years in a row and these birds are all three and older, you know? So Mm. you get like that population dynamic I was talking about. There's something that's universal over everything that makes them a little more leery or did we have an incredible hatch last year and all these turkeys are two-year-olds and everything seems to be working better this year? You know, two-year-old turkeys in general through the years are the ones that give you that heart-pounding hunt more often. You know? They're my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah. And that's just because they're old enough to come in, but they're not too old and where they're too smart and they're old, on that middle old ground. Turkeys, old turkeys can give you fits, man. They don't gobble nearly as much. They're not as likely to come in and not saying you can't, but those two-year-old turkeys are generally a little more vocal. 
Yeah, the two-year-olds get sometimes, yeah, I mean, they just get crazy and screaming the whole way in and getting there as quick as they can. And that's what that's when you're cranking right there. When I, especially in them hollows in the Midwest or whatever, I mean, the darn leaves are shaking when they're, you know, when they're coming in gobbling to you. I mean, that'll pure fire you up right now, though. No question. That's what, when you think about, oh, the classical spring turkey hunt, I'm in the woods somewhere in the Midwest, in the echo chamber, I always call it, because it keeps those gobbles in, in the woods with you. And when they're coming and you can hear that gobble echoing through there, it just, it drives me insane, man. It's it's the best, best moments in outdoors that you can dream up, in my opinion. I love it. I love it. I'll, I'll, and hopefully I'll love it till the day I die. I'm sure I will. The other, uh, the one other thing too is, is uh, <clears throat> when we get back to the first question when we first started, you know, the things that people do wrong. Well, one thing I think people do wrong, younger hunters or what have you, and, and we talked about it already, is waste your time every morning on the same turkey. You need backups. You, yeah, you got your number one, but you need three, four, five, or six something else to go on if that turkey's not coming in because you will waste a whole season on that turkey sometimes and you may not be there that morning that he's going to end up coming into you i mean maybe it's if your season ends may 31st maybe he's not going to do that to june 1st so don't waste your season go in there later sometimes 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning see if he'll work better then but don't waste every morning on that one turkey. Yeah, not only are you wasting time, you're also making him harder to kill eventually because he's he's figuring out all your mistakes, you know? He's going to come <laughs> in, you're, you're going to spook yeah. him, you're going to call too much, all that other stuff. Like, to me, consistent success in the spring comes down to fresh turkeys. I say it all the time. When we're out hunting, I like to have a lot of properties and a lot of options. And then when I go in there, I want it to be right and kill that turkey when he's fresh. The best time to kill him is the first time you try to kill him. That much I That's can guarantee. Right. That's a stack the odds in your favor. Yes, 100%. That's good advice. We did that. Uh, Austin and I kind of did that last year. He's got a property. It's got an old school bus on it. So I just call it the bus property. We take all our pictures in front of the bus, and it's kind of like a notorious thing on this piece. And he had some birds on there one year that – me and Austin went in, and then Ross went in the following day. My buddy is like, oh, I'll go in and kill that turkey. And he went in and had it walk all over him, too. And so it just kind of became a joke there that we all got spanked by the same group of birds every time we went in. So we got one more year at that property. We'll see if uh, anything changes. I might as well name them for you. <laughs> yeah, give them a name. Yeah. Give them a name. Yeah, and another thing I see guys doing is they'll go out and they'll call, try to call birds in ahead of the season to practice, right? Well, don't burn those chips then. I mean, not saying you can't go kill that turkey in again, but you're not doing yourself any favors by calling him in ahead of the season. I, I don't even like them to hear me unless I'm trying to kill them. I don't use a turkey call till the season's open in the woods. Yep. Same. You don't, and, and there's a lot of times you don't even have to hear them. There's other things that go on where you know they're there. You see them out in the field or, you know, if you happen to go for a wood looking for sheds or whatever, you find scratching or what have you, the turkeys are going to at least be within hearing of them areas. Mm -hmm. Yep. 100%. And his historical spots, have you ever noticed that, Ernie? Like, 
you go to the same spot year in and year out, there's always going to be a turkey in that honey hole. You know, it's amazing how those birds will go to the same general places. And as I noticed it through the years, as the population started to decline, it was only the honey of the honey holes that still had birds gobbling in it. And a lot of some of these extra spots out in the, you know, these goofy places where you used to find them, you didn't find them anymore. They were only in those hammer spots. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's places 25, 30 years. I go to the same, if I go to a state and I, it's already in my mind. I, I'm going right to this spot and that's where I'm listening from. And there's certain trees. You kill turkeys every year sitting on the same tree every yep. year. Yeah, there's just spots that they like to be during the mating season. Yep, I agree. And I think a lot of that has to do with, A, good roosting area, and B, where are those hens going to be nesting at? You know, because where they winter and where they end up doing their mating in the spring may be the same place, but a lot of times it's not. It's somewhere different. They'll they'll shift from that winter range into more of a spring mating range, if you will. Well, that, you know, and, I, and you've heard people say it many times. Well, I had turkeys all winter, and now now they're gone. You know, well, yeah, well, things change, then and they're going to move. They're going to go to where the feed is, of course, but they're also going to go to where the breeding or the the hatching is the best too, the nesting sites. Yes. Well, they're going to go into them places too. But you know, and it, when we first started, Mark, I, I, I think you were, even though you were in Missouri, so it was a little different, but. When we'd call a woods or go through a woods or whatever, we were hoping a turkey heard our calls. And then, you know, after, you know, a few years when the populations really started growing, I believe a turkey heard every call you did. He might not respond or he might not come to it, but there there were times when we were trying to find turkeys because we didn't have that many of them. But anymore, I believe still it's pretty close to that. Uh, but it has dwindled, like you say, a bunch. But uh, now I believe when you call or, or in certain areas when you call, turkey hears Turkey hears you. They don't always gobble all the time at every call. You know, how many turkeys have come into you silent? You never even knew they were there. But I believe that a turkey does hear about every call you do. And even the population's down, I still pretty much believe that. That's 100% truth. It's also a good tactic and a good way to approach it because you're not out prospect. You may be prospecting for a hot one, but you don't necessarily have to prospect for one to hear you. So sometimes the walking and calling to me doesn't work as well as it used to because turkeys don't gobble on up into the day like they used to. Back in the 90s, you could strike turkeys at 10, 11, 12 o'clock. These days, man, you hit 8, 39 o'clock in the Midwest and it's hard to hear a turkey gobble after that hour of the day so you have to go to spots and and work on a visual approach or just sit down and call and hope one comes in silent like ernie's talking about we used to go go on a roost in the evening we used to hear as many or more in the evening as we heard in the morning you can't buy a turkey to gobble on a roost anymore in new york it's it's tough and it's getting less why why is that i'd like to know why that is I think they're just that I think their testosterone they're, doesn't get as don't high do as it anymore. Just don't do it. Yeah. They just don't. I would have said just out of guess, like pressure would have been my main reason. But that's what everybody used to say, but they gobble in the morning. So. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't, I don't think it's pressure. I know. So anyway, uh, Yeah, what it is, I'd like to know. I think it's the amount of testosterone. It's that population dynamics. Is that population 
trying to take over in an area. Therefore, all the males are fired up or they're just not as fired up as they used to be. You see it every day when you're turkey hunting. Birds walk around picking and feeding, not strutting. Call to them. They go the other way. There's just certain birds. Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question. What do you think? People ask me, well, yeah, the turkey's gobbling. He won't come in. I said, what color is his head? That's the first thing I ask them. Mm. I say it's red. I said, if it's red, I'm not even bothered going out there after him. Because they'll stand there and gobble and carry on. But if that head ain't red, white, and blue, got some kind of breeding color in it, he ain't coming to no turkey call. Not ones that I ever mess with. Red, red-headed turkeys, I don't want nothing to do with them. I like ones with white, that white cap, man. You think all right. the turkeys you kill with that white right there, they're coming. Yeah, but well, I, they, yeah the red, me. white, and blue, the breeding colors. Once they pump all that blood in there and get that color going. But if that turkey's out there, he's just out there feeding in that field or what have you, and he's gobbling because he's courtesy gobbling. You're yep. calling, he's gobbling because he's supposed to gobble. But as far as him He's not coming to you till that head gets the right coloration. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. At yeah. all. That's good to know. That's interesting stuff. You know, I I thought I tried to pay attention to that, but just not. I don't know enough, right, to like that next level of detail. I guess. That's why we're doing the series, man. Picking all these guys' brains. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it's right. Been, I'm learning a ton. And it's been the old guys. The breadth of knowledge that has come through this series like everybody has a little bit more to say and we've heard some common themes but we've heard something different from every single guest thus far you know yep. and it's uh that's the magic of turkeys there's no there's no one magic bullet it's a combination of a lot of different things that ends up yielding consistent success with them and no doubt my favorite thing about it too is nobody is like of course not right but you think you when you get together like these turkey hunting legends you think there could be like a flavor of like arrogance because they've done it and they've killed a lot of birds but everyone's just kind of like turkeys do what they do and they humble me every day i go like that's the common theme it's like well there you go so it's hard to go as just someone learning and be upset that you didn't shoot a turkey like you should still just go enjoy it because you can be as good as you want to be and you're still not going to shoot one or see one every time you go so that's the cool thing about it i think but what I say about that is, you know, like a lot of the camps I guided out of, when I'd get in there, you know, one of the hunter, paying hunters in the camp, they're going, well, I, I want to go with you because you're that guy, whatever. And I used to tell are you nuts? Why do you want to go with me? Well, you're the calling guy in there. I said, no, I'm the last guy you want. I said, I'm here a week a year. I said, these guys live here. They know where the turkeys are. You don't want to go with me. You want to kill a turkey? I said, yeah, you may kill one with me you may not you go with the local guys that live here they're watching these things every day they know what woods i don't know where to go i i didn't come here and scout or anything like that i said i'm gonna get yeah i'm gonna call i'm sure they're gonna give me a decent woods don or to take you in but the local guys is you know just like a farm or whatever you talk to a deer hunting or whatever mark you know this you go in there and, and the landowner would say oh yeah you know you go on over there that, that buck's been hanging over there them Turkey's been in the corner of that field. I don't second guess him. That's where I go. And you know what? 99% of the time, he's right. That is where they're at. 100%. So, 
You're exactly right. I was on a hunt in Texas, one of these deals where I'd rolled in the night before and it was a guided thing and everybody had a caller, everybody had a guide and everybody had a writer. It was a writer's camp. And um, I was uh, assigned with this gentleman and we were out the next day and there was turkeys gobbling all around us, you know, and I was using my instinct about where I'd go. And he was very quiet. He said very little. And uh, we had a rider with us and we we're walking. I'm walking across this little plateau, kind of kind of getting close to the turkeys. And he tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, Mr. Drury. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, when I hunt this roost, I usually sit right here. Buddy, I turned around. And I sat my butt right there because he said the word usually. And I was like, he knows enough that we need to be sitting right here. We sat down and put the, the rider out front, him with him. I, I backed off in the brush and we killed a turkey like that. He knew exactly where to be. So you can't, they can't guide the guide. If you're going on a hunt and there's a guide there, don't tell them what to do. Good advice. That's cool. Up there a little oh. bit, man. He did another good podcast, and we got through it right. A little uh, one hiccup at the beginning. That's right. We got we did through it. You only froze up a couple. Same times. thing in a boat. <laughs> yeah, I'm screwing up. Here. No, you're good. You're good. We made it through the majority of the body of that podcast. I thought it could have gone worse than what it did, but it, it went smooth. So he's freezing up again. Yeah. So well, if it, if it ends here, it was a good podcast, and I I'm feel not, like I don't have you guys at all right now. All right. I think there you're back is. now. Maybe now you got us. We got you now. We better end it. Kurt. There it is. There it is. Right. I'm back now. We're back, Ernie. This is awesome, man. I appreciate your time. We got through the podcast smoothly, but um, I respect your time. I, I appreciate what you've done for the turkey industry, and it's cool to hear some of these old stories and kind of tap into just a little bit of your turkey knowledge well hey it was great being on i had a great time always enjoy talking to mark and spending time with mark and it's great to meet you it's great to meet you too hopefully i get to meet you in person here real soon so you know what i'm gonna throw a plug in here like ernie still guides fishing up there on the Niagara River, and Tracy and I got to go with him and Taylor. You talk about a beautiful trip, not just the fishing, but if you want to go see one of the most beautiful parts of our country, he's still a guide for fishing up there, and it, it is breathtaking what you see on that river. Very cool. Give me a call. I'm ready. Ernie's guide service. I'll talk to the All wife. Right. Let's do. Let's go on a trip and get something done. So give them give them a phone number, Ernie, if they want to book a trip with you. Yeah, you, you can book a trip. It's uh, my phone number seven one six six zero nine three zero six four. Perfect, awesome man. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Turkey OG series. I appreciate it, Ernie, and thank you, Mark. You betcha. You got anything well, I, I, again? OG is that old guy? What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Not intended. Old goats. Old goats. <laughs> The original, I had to ask what it meant. I didn't know. He said, original gangster. I go, what's original gangster mean? And I guess it's slang for somebody that's yeah. been doing it a while. You I kind of like it. Yeah, it's hey, fun. The OG. It it makes sense to my generation. <laughs> no, I'm not. Don't hey, be anything negative by that. One month, I'll be 70, buddy. Hey, man, you're out there doing it, man. I got to respect it. Right. Nothing wrong with that. I haven't that. slowed down either, have I, Mark? No, not a second. He still drinks as much now as the day I met him. <laughs> There's something to that. Uh, you know, I, I shared a story the other day about Harold saying that he'd, he'd give uh, Taylor's baby a $100 bill if she was born on April 19th. And I told Ernie that story. He goes, 
I was born on the 21st and I go, that's the due date. So, you know, Taylor's baby may be born on, on Ernie's birthday. So I'm, I'm I don't have Harold's money. I'll give her 25. Yeah. You told me 50 <laughs> at the show, but you were drinking. So. Okay. 50. <laughs> it's on record now. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. Well, Ernie, we love you and appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. I love you guys. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you, buddy. Everybody. Thanks for tuning in, watching, listening. You know what to do. Go shoot a turkey this spring. Best of luck to you. Later.